Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Startup Equity Matters, a podcast about how to create value from startup equity. Uh, today's episode, I'm fresh back from the US uh, after a 26-hour journey only a couple of days ago, so hopefully my brain will be fully functioning. <laughs> I'm sure we'll, we'll get through it in some way, shape, or form. If I say anything weird, uh, I'm definitely blaming definitely blaming the jet lag. So, um, yeah, so look, as you know, this, start, uh, this podcast is for early-stage founders and their teams. And remember, the enemy of startup equity matters is the old school ways, complicated lawyer meetings, paper, PDFs, big fees, all that stuff. Uh, we're, we're definitely against all that stuff. Today, we have uh, an incredible guest, uh, one who himself creates and shares awesome startup content and has built an incredible, um, well, several, I think, incredible startup communities Uh He's um, also recently launched uh, a new product, which is a marketplace for creators. Uh, and today we're going to be digging into the topic uh, insights into raising versus bootstrapping um, because he's done both, which is super cool. So welcome, uh, Hauk. Hey, what's up, Jason? Thanks for having me. Super excited. Oh, great to have you here, man. So as uh, as I sort of said in the intro, you've successfully um, raised and bootstrapped. So raised from A16Z. So I'm excited to, to dig into that a little bit and, and now bootstrapping your latest venture. So um, welcome, man. And um, yeah, keen to hear what you're up to. What's this marketplace all about? A uh, new project is called Megaphone. It's a managed marketplace for content amplification on social media. Basically, you share a LinkedIn or a Twitter slash X uh, URL with us after you post it. You set a budget for how much you want to spend. Um, and then we, our algorithm matches it to the most relevant creators who are online right now. Uh, creators have an audience of 20,000 or more. Many are in the hundred thousands. Uh, we send the post to them um, and then they comment on it, retweet it, quote, tweet it, uh, whatever you request. Um, and this drives impressions, views, engagement, uh, and leads uh, to your business. Awesome, man. And uh, you're based out of New York, I think? Yeah, based in New York, uh, Williamsburg. And um, how do you find New York as a place to run a run a startup out of? <laughs> well, uh, I run it out of my apartment for the most part, so uh, yeah. it's a uh, it's nice to look over the East River as as nice as that can be. <laughs> but no, the scene here in New York is definitely growing. I mean, San Francisco is still the mecca, the capital, the center of gravity. The network effects there are just too strong to to break, in my opinion, mm. uh, especially for IRL uh, teams. But uh, the New York scene is really great. Uh, there's a lot of great networking connections that can happen here. Yeah, I've been to some great networking events all around the world in startups. But when you go to one in San Francisco, you really notice the scale is like 500 or 1,000 people rock up and they're all building something. It's pretty cool. Um, awesome. Awesome. All right. So, um, look, one thing we like to do early on, let's, let's learn a little bit about you, man. Um, you had a pretty cool career in tech. Um, including Uber and, and Airbnb, so just two of the small names in tech <laughs> um, early in your career. Like, how did you end up, you know, getting into working for these big, well, now big, big tech giants? Yeah, I joined Uber Eats uh, back in 2016 when it was still pretty small, a couple cities at the time. Um, and I'd been an engineer at a small startup before that, um, but I actually applied to Uber and just took any role on Eats that I could. Um, so did a couple roles there over my two and a half years. I, you know, cold applied, cold emailed my way into that role. Um, and then ended up moving up to San Francisco where I built a team, uh, in our data science division for Uber Eats doing pricing and logistics and matching and some fun stuff there. Uh, and then I jumped over to Airbnb where I was a product manager for Airbnb plus, uh, for about a year and a half. Um, another cold apply, um, 
just been building my network in SF and, and ended up just cold applying anyway. <laughs> um, got laid off Mary Me during the pandemic because our product was kind of going in person uh, to people's homes and making them better, uh, which you couldn't do in April 2020. And mm -hmm. so uh, spent a few months uh, kind of looking into different jobs, different startup ideas, uh, and ended up uh, ended up founding uh, what became a pretty well known uh, accelerator slash membership club, um, and went on to raise from Andreessen and a bunch of other great investors. Yeah, excited to learn more about that raise for sure, and and that that venture. Um, just quickly before we get there, though, um, you know, there's lots of ways to have equity, and uh, sometimes you can work for a tech company that's already listed. Sometimes you can go through an IPO. Sometimes you can be early stage. Sometimes you can be late stage private company. Would you mind sharing a bit about your, you know, employee equity journey at, at Uber and Airbnb? Yeah. I mean, you know, you hear Uber and Airbnb, you think, wow, they both made it to IPO, you know, must be bathing in hundred dollar bills, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Share the love of it. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it's, it's far, far from it, man. The um, I joined Uber when the uh, share price for uh, RSUs uh, was like forty-two or forty-three dollars a share, um, and when it IPO'd, I think it was somewhere around there as well. I think it's still only somewhere above there. I sold my shares a long time ago, um, but um, so that would have been like a you know you get a base plus some sort of bonus structure plus some sort of long-term incentive, kind of like a package. So you oh yeah. So it's still like a bit of extra cash that you get if you can liquidate it, I suppose. So that's still cool, even though you didn't get like a 5x or whatever <laughs> run up, um, which would have been, I guess, ideal. But <laughs> yeah, de definitely. I mean, it's still great to get for sure. Um, Uber was a great company uh, early on, and I, I think it still is, but it, it was a really incredible place to work early on. Um, but yeah, we had a base salary, had an annual bonus, uh, and then... Um, and then got the equity on top of that, which was vesting over four years. I left after about two and a half years. Um, so a little bit over half of that uh, had vested. Um, then same situation at Airbnb in terms of how it was structured. Uh, Four-year vesting uh, got laid off after a year and a half. I think they accelerated the vesting slightly because of the layoffs. Um, so I got a couple extra months of, of vesting for that. Um, the, um, you know, I joined and the price was like 100 to 110 at the time. I forget exactly where it was. Um, and then the IPO was, you know, somewhere above there. Um, so that was, that was all right. But um, yeah, pr pretty amazing to get to work at these, you know, machines, these giant machines, these companies that are changing the world uh, and get a small piece of them uh, while I was there. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Um, and then, um, so was it like off the back of the pandemic and everything was a bit hectic? These periods can create a lot of opportunity and a lot of, I guess, creativity because, you know, many people sort of have to kind of hustle and, and use their initiative and and drive to create something new, right? Because opportunities aren't sort of left, right and center in these tough times. Um, was that a little bit of how Launch House was, was started? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I had, after working at these big companies, I'd learned a ton, um, been about a little over four years between the two of them. Um, I was looking at like other jobs that I could take either at big startups or small ones. Um, and just nothing really called out to me. And so I started hacking on ideas. Um, and this was, you know, peak pandemic, right? So everyone was quarantining in their apartments and, you know, no one was going out and really doing things. And so when I pitched the idea to some friends of like, hey, I'm going to get this giant house in Tulum in Mexico. And, you know, you guys are going to come live with me for a month and we're going to build startups while we're there. 
that was like a really crazy idea at the time, right? Now it's like, oh, you can you know go get a house with some friends and build stuff, whatever. But because of the context, cultural context, it was uh, it was a really interesting idea. And so, um, yeah, I think a friend of mine had tried to start one up in Utah, at, like rural Utah. And in my mind, I was like, well, people probably want to go to Tulum more than rural Utah. And so that's... I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless we're hitting the slopes is winter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we were down there. We were living together for the month. I managed to convince uh, like 18 or 19 people to come live there with me for the month. Um, went into this cold call mode after I, you know, um, after I put 25K on my own credit card, had no real plan. It wasn't meant to be like a business at the time. It was just an experiment. Uh, we got down there and we started building stuff and you know the energy was just very electric because we'd all been cooped up in our own apartments for at that point quite a few months um and so uh we posted content right we were posting on instagram we were posting on twitter and between the 19 of us we had a you know a fair amount of people who were connected in various parts of the startup world and so we ended up having TechCrunch write a piece about us the new york times mentioned us uh-huh. we were having great founders from like, you know, the Teal Fellowship and Y Combinator ask us like, hey, can I come join? And I'm like, join what, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> And so at that point, I was like, all right, there's enough momentum here that I don't know what kind of businesses are going to be yet, but it's it's too big. It's moving too fast to, to kind of ignore. And so uh, at that point, two of the other guys who were there during that first month uh, wanted to come on and like be co-founders in the project. And so we and so we did that. Amazing uh, kickoff story. Very, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> and were you in Tulum long or did you come back to the US? Like what was the next big step and, and how did you go from there to raising what, what I think was a pretty fat like seed round from A16Z, right? Like that was no small round. Yeah. So um, we did two consecutive houses in Tulum. So we had the initial one, which was just like this experiment that I put together. And then we did a second one, which we like ran with an application process and ran it together as like a group of the three of us. Um and so we were there until like right before Thanksgiving that year. Um, and at that point, we decided, all right, we're all excited about this. We all like working together. Let's see where this goes. And so uh, we decided to book a house in Beverly Hills or the Hollywood Hills, somewhere around there, uh, because we thought that the intersection of founders building stuff and creators distributing that into the world was really interesting and was kind of where things were going. Um, so we booked this house uh, in, in in Beverly Hills. and. Um, uh, two of us moved in. Uh, my other two co-founders moved in. I sort of, uh, you know, ran the interview process, ran the operations of the business, started getting some fundraising conversations going on the side, um, and we ran that for about three months. Um, had three cohorts come through. We put a little over two hundred k of our own money down to get the house for the three months. And um, yeah, we were. We legitimately were maniacs. We were just convinced that we could fill the house with people who would pay enough to get us our money. That was our only OKR, right? <laughs> pay well, the when rent. You got 200K, when you got 200K down, yeah, like money back is a, a nice um, OKR. <laughs> yeah, well, we needed it for sure. Um, but yeah, after that, we we built up our social media presence a lot. A lot of interesting people were talking about us. And so... Um, we thought we had a vision to create a membership club around it and eventually raise a venture fund to invest in the people who are coming through the program. And so on the back of that, uh, we started to raise money. Uh, we closed a $3 million seed round led by Flybridge Capital and a bunch of other great investors, people like Bology, Sven Vossen participated in the round. Um, and then only like, you know, 
six ish months later, we were in talks with Andreessen, you know, Andrew Chan had come over and done uh, an uh, in-person event at the house and was really impressed. Um, we'd been in talks with him and actually on my wedding day, uh, kind of like formalized that we wanted to do a series A and work together. It's pretty crazy. That is crazy. LA, <laughs> LA was really on the up at that point, right? There's a lot of people moving out of San Francisco. It definitely was a bit more hyper in LA and there still is. I mean, I feel like the ecosystem down there is you know, like really pumping. Uh, Andrew Chan had moved down there, I think, or at least was like pretty heavily invested in that ecosystem. So it kind of makes sense that the timing was was really right for that as well. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. The LA startup ecosystem is still on the come up, in my opinion. I just think that some of the people who moved out have started to move back. No, regardless of where they moved to, they've started to move back to San Francisco because of yeah. the AI boom and kind of how much gravity has been there. But I'm still yeah. I'm still very much on LA. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so wedding day and um, what getting to some sort of heads of agreement with Andreessen on the same day. That's that's not too bad. Did you did you invite them along to the wedding? Is that sort of how you, <laughs> have you also no, called you calling your firstborn Andrew? <laughs> uh, well, I, I was in New York, unfortunately. So um, yeah, we were we did the wedding in Central Park, but um, yeah, no, it was a crazy day. Um, I think um, we were still negotiating terms like for a bit after that, but we got the kind of confirmation that they want to do around at that point, which was great for us. Um, and oh. so, uh, yeah, negotiating for my, for my honeymoon a little bit. <laughs> did you tell, did you tell your wife or did you keep it on the down low? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I basically had no option not to, cause we got the, we got the call while we were after the wedding, we got, went to the airport and got in the plane. And while we were on the tarmac, I got the call. So it was, uh, <laughs> talk about mixing uh business into the into the personal life wow that's that's next level but um super exciting you must have been on a huge huge high i mean that's that's an incredible run with a lot of risk and a lot of hype and momentum and like the wedding at the same time like i could only imagine what that all must have been like but um pretty yeah un unreal man it was uh definitely one of the highlights of of my life in terms of like a day you know really incredible amazing amazing and then uh when was that that was like a couple of years ago three years ago maybe like just, just two years ago yeah um wow. at that point it was fall of um of 2021 and mm -hmm. then we negotiated for a bit went through closing for a bit um and then finally announced the round in early february of uh 2022 and the round like the you know the public information on the round what was what was it it was like a seed round how much did you raise so we, we technically like skipped a pre-seed because we had self-funded that initial house yeah. right so which i advocate uh, for everyone to do skip rounds <laughs> as much as you can because every time you do a round you dilute your bloody cap table <laughs> true the 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 faster you can move the the better for sure i mean not everyone has the ability to you know put a bunch of money down on a on a house in beverly hills but no. um if you're able to to get as far as you can without raising i i recommend it um if you're generating revenue if you're able to sustain yourself for me personally like i am not a believer in founders you know starving themselves for the sake of growing their product i think you make better decisions when your other like you know in terms of like the hierarchy of needs right maslow's hierarchy of needs as long as your bottom needs are being met you're you're going to make smarter decisions with with your business on top of that so um i definitely don't recommend people to to kind of you know go the the ramen the ramen diet uh, for as long as possible but 100 percent agree yeah 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 but with that with that said um no that was we technically that was our technically our series a um Gotcha. Was you skipped two rounds. Okay, fair enough. That's cool. <laughs> no, if you no, go no, faster. No, no. <laughs> we, 
We had the we had the three million dollar uh, seed about six months before. Oh, that's right. They were, oh, three. Oh, okay, okay. So it was three and right. Okay, yeah, we really were moving fast, man. Okay, twenty twenty one, crazy times. <laughs> oh, that was wild times. That's cool. <laughs> um, no, yeah, it's uh be tough to do that now with the way the markets are, but um, yeah, we we wrote it for sure. Um, and uh, and it was great. It was great for our business. Once we announced the announced the Andreessen round, you know, the profile of our company changed from being like this interesting experiment that was happening in LA to you know, oh, we expanded to New York, and oh, we're raising a venture fund now, and people are willing to talk to us because we have Andreessen backing us. It was it was very imagine very. Had, imagine we had a, had an extra couple of years on that run. You know, like you would have been doing some crazy stuff still now. Like if, yeah, you know, music does stop on these these runs, you know, every whatever, 10 years or so, you know, we all have to accept that and work through it. But um, yeah, exciting for you that you got to be, I guess, at the epicenter of all that, that wildness um, there in, in 2021 and pretty cool stuff, pretty cool stuff. Um, I guess moving along then, you know, not everything goes as you plan in business and uh, you've got a new venture now. So let's talk a little bit about, I guess, just the fast forwarded, you know, well, actually, let's talk a bit about the equity. So, like, you're raising, right? So, you're raising, so you got through pre seed, self funded, you raised the $3 million seed. Like, that's, you know, pretty standard for a seed, I would say. Like, it's probably on the higher end, one to three million for a seed. I think it's, it's pretty cool, pretty normal. So, towards the higher end there. And then you raised the Series A, which was how much was that again? 12 million. So, you're talking like some serious um, valuations here through, <clears throat> through this period. Um, what did you do in relation to like employee equity? Or did you even have time to stop and think about that? I mean, you're a pretty smart dude and you seem to know a lot about startups. So I presume you did have time to stop and think and, and get an ESOP in place, but you might not have. How did you manage all that? That's like, yeah, okay. it's pretty complicated. Yeah, we, we were definitely moving as fast as possible for sure. But with that said, um, yeah, of course, you know, getting the right people to join the early team was incredibly important to us. I, you know, personally put a lot of weight onto making sure we found the, the uh, great people that we did. Um, you know, we hired people from Stanford, Uber, um, uh, Y Combinator, former Y Combinator founder joined our team, uh, you know, a whole bunch of really, really great people. And it really helps you raise too, doesn't it? Once you get like, if you can pull those people in, yeah. And attracting them, I guess they all want some equity, right? There's, they're not like, they've all got great careers or they're used to equity coming back to a seed stage company. So they want like a real you know, piece of the cake, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, um, we set aside a 10% employee option pool pretty early on. Uh, and then each time we brought capital in, we refreshed that to be back up to, to 10%. Um, we never really use, uh, close to it because we didn't hire many, like, you know, engineers tend to, or technical employees tend to require more equity early on than, uh, than non-technical employees. And, you know, we were an IRL business for the most part. Um, and so the limited software that we did build, uh, wasn't like we needed to build a big engineering org right away or anything like that. So, uh, but we still wanted to top it up to make sure that everyone was, uh, was taken care of and, and feeling good and incentivized to, to give their best to the, the company. We definitely had a, you know, work really hard type of culture, um, which I think is important. So, um, yeah, we wanted to make sure people were incentivized. And any, any insights from that period? And one thing we talked about previously was like a longer exercise period, which is something that I'm pretty passionate about advocating for. Yeah, no, no doubt. I'm passionate about it too. I think the, the standard, at least in the U S is, 
um, you know, like very, very short compared to uh, compared to when you leave the company, you need to exercise the the equity and you know, people aren't necessarily in the financial position to to do that uh, within the whatever 90 days of, of leaving the company or so. So um, yeah, we looked into this and we saw that some other companies, I think Sam Altman's talked about this, some other YC companies have done this. Um, we gave, I believe, a seven year uh, exercise window for folks. Um, so if the company would have gone on to have been this massive success that we were all invested and hoping that it would be, um, then, um, you know, anytime someone would have left, they would have sold seven years to, to exercise that. So they would have had time to build up the finances necessary to make that decision rather than feel like they have to make the decision right away before they know what the outcome of the company is going to be. Yeah, I'm a huge uh, advocate for this. As I said, um, it's really tough for people to have to, you know, pull money out of their own pocket to exercise such a risky asset. Um, one important element here is um, utilizing non-qualified stock options, so NSOs instead of ISOs. If you choose an ISO, then they really have to exercise within three months of leaving. Like it's, they don't have to per se, but like the they really do need to, um, you know, for the tax rules. So we always advocate using non-qualified stock options, even though you do pay a little bit more tax in the long run. Um, you have the ability to have the long exercise period, which is a huge advantage uh, in the overall structuring of, of your ESOP. Um, and the big thing is when, in my opinion, you want the team members, we use the word team members because it could be contractors or employees or advisors or whatever, and I think it's better to sort of think of it about it that way, you know, you want them to sort of really be exercising when you exit. Or at least if you if you don't end up becoming a unicorn and you flip back to profit at some point, you know, you know, you you would exercise when there's dividends coming through. But largely you really only want to be exercising when when there's an exit, because otherwise, why? Like you've kind of it's like double paying. You pay in your time and your effort and building the company, and then you pay with your cash. It's a pretty harsh situation for for the team. But um cool. Well, glad to hear you're you're on uh, my side of the fence on that one. Not everybody is, but I think I think you know a lot of good people coming around to that as a as a good way to to, to manage it. Um, and so then I no longer doing much with Launch House. I think you've sort of got a little bit of a role there, but you handed over to one of your co-founders who's sort of like got that venture on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Yeah, I left the company in December of last year, December 2022. Basically, our brand had sort of diminished and I saw sort of the writing on the wall that it wasn't going to really recover. Um, and so uh, my co-founder thought that we could revive it. We kind of saw differently on that. Um, and so just very amicably, I was like, hey, you think we can recover this? Go for it. For me, uh, I need to kind of remove myself and and you know figure out what I'm going to do next. And so uh, I went to Cape Town actually for like three months and just chilled out You know, my biggest problem to deal with was like, what winery am I going to go to this weekend? <laughs> Which was nice. Um, and then um, came back to the US in March. And I, you know, I've been writing this newsletter for, um, for uh, a few months at that point, sort of as a side project, uh, but saw the potential to make it like a pretty nice business in and of itself. And so um, decided that this year, my number one goal was going to be 50,000 newsletter subscribers. Um, we actually hit that in July, which is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, now, man. yeah, no, we're at 75 now, continuing to grow it, should hit 100 by the end of the year. I stayed on uh, to do like advisory help 
uh, for Launch House uh, for about three months and also stayed a partner of our venture fund for about three months. Uh, I resigned both of those in uh, in March. Um, and you know, these days, my co-founder is sort of pivoting the company. He's working on something uh, totally different. Um, and you know, I'll leave it to him to share kind of what the next phase of that is going to be. Yeah, it was an interesting journey when when the original business idea doesn't work out. It's like, you know, do you retain funds? Do you go on? Do both founders go on? Does one founder go on? I mean, there's a lot of discussions to be had, I think, with all the stakeholders. So um, I guess one day maybe I'll get Brett on and we can learn more. But um, <laughs> I think... For the purpose of this chat, um, now I'd love to hear about the bootstrapping journey. So that's kind of like one of the most exciting capital raising sort of paths you could ever go on in 2021. Um, you know, incredible capital raising environment that we had and really raising hard into that off the back of the pandemic. Like what an incredible experience for you. And, and now, you know, based on our chat, you've kind of got quite a different viewpoint on how you would manage your equity, how would you, you would manage your company and your cash flows and funding and, and, and everything like that. So let's talk a bit about, you know, the newsletter and the marketplace, you know, as a, you know, founder and with a marketing slant, I kind of get a feeling that they're like interconnected in some way. But let's talk a bit about how to start a company, um, how to bootstrap a company. Um, let's talk about this journey over the last year or so that you've been on. And and um, like, where should we start? Should we start with the newsletter? Um, I think that came first. And then definitely want to dig into the, the new marketplace as well. Um, perhaps we talk about the newsletter and also... How did you come up with the marketplace as as the new thing? Did it happen organically? Did you always have this in mind? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the place I'll start is like, why do the newsletter at all, right? Like the newsletter, not a venture scalable business, even if I grow it really, really big, um, even if I use it to acquire other newsletters, which I've already done, I've already acquired two other newsletters, I might acquire more in the future. Um, even if I go down that route, try to make it a really big, a really big play, it's not a venture scalable play, right? And so why do it at all? In my opinion, you know, the combination of uh, creators as distribution mechanisms, and also um, uh, the rise of like these AI tools uh, is going to make product and software way less of a differentiator than having distribution from from day one and being able to form that center of gravity, get some revenue coming into your business right away. So um, to me, I thought, oh, I could you know go back to my data science route, uh, roots and build an AI uh, product, but why don't I at first focus on building as big of an audience distribution network as I could, right? And so that's where the idea for the newsletter came from. I basically write startup advice for founders uh, every week, two issues a week, one deep dive, and then another curated resources uh, email with my like favorite picks of the week. Um, so was doing that as my sole goal. Um, but you know, I've also built audiences on um, Twitter and or X and uh, LinkedIn um, over the past couple of years as I was building Launch House. And so um, I think I'm at, you know, 90,000 ish followers between the two now. And so the way I've done that is, you know, obviously by making content that resonates with people, but kind of the dirty secret of social media is that if you want to get big on a platform quickly, it really helps to have friends who are in the same niche as you, ideally with larger audiences than you, who will engage with your content. Um, and therefore their followers see it. And if it resonates with them, then they become your followers, right? So the sign of cross-pollination of audiences uh, happens in a lot of like WhatsApp group chats, Telegram group chats, iMessage group chats, whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, most, if not all big creators are doing this. Uh, and, you know, that's just how it is. Um, and that's across any platform. So I had done this a bit with some friends in various niches. Um, and I thought to myself like, hey, this is really cool, but I only have access to this because, you know, I built, 
a cool company and I have these connections now from building this network. It would be really cool to be able to offer this to people who you know don't have those connections and kind of democratize this access to distribution. Um, and so that's sort of what we're doing with Megaphone. Um, and it's basically an engagement group without the group, right? You share the post with us, we pick the best creators from our network and it gets amplified and you get their followers or you get their, uh, you know, people become leads for you or whatever it might be. Um, so that's kind of where it came from. I just texted a couple friends about it in July and I was like, hey, would you be interested in this? And like a hundred percent of them responded right away and were like, can I pay for this today? And so... <laughs> At that point, I was kind of like, oh, man, like, you know, I thought I was going to build a newsletter this year. But like, here we go again. There's clearly appetite for this. So got a lot of good signals. I remember, I remember seeing that post at the time. Algorithms <laughs> <laughs> got us pretty well tied up, I think. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was unexpected, but uh, it made sense, right? Like it's a system that works. It's been proven by a lot of big creators to know how to do it. So. I just thought, how can I turn that into, into a business, into a product that anyone can get access to? And so I uh, spent a couple of weeks kind of validating different parts of the idea. I actually had people pay me $1,000 a month uh, for it uh, as part of a beta, just to prove that like pe- there were people out there who really, 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 really wanted this. Um, and so we provided the full service um, for people, did the beta, and basically proved it out. I learned a ton. And so since then, now we've lowered the price to... Uh, $89 a month or $49 a month for like a lower tier um, of the of the service. Um, and um, yeah, that's been how it's been going. We're now doing, um, I think we're at 11K, maybe 11.5 MRR um, and an additional 10K, 11K or so of monthly uh, revenue from people spending through the network. And, and we take a cut of that. Wow. Oh, congrats, man. So yeah, the newsletter was the big goal the year i guess just as part of the reset and to you know build a great audience because you knew at some point um that audience would be needing some product um and i think it's a wonderful you know the way you've sort of understood modern marketing or you shouldn't call it modern marketing it's a crap term but like i guess you understood what was going on out there and um and now you're able to i guess one thing communities do is not only they give you the ability to provide products, but they give you the ability to learn, you know, like you've got that feedback there and you can start to feel where the energy is and where the need is and where the problems are to solve. So I think it's awesome insight for anyone out there that that wants to be an entrepreneur. Um, First time, second time, like build a community, talk to the community, listen, um, then you build trust and you build rapport and you can see where the problems are. So really cool insight. And then... So then with the new venture, so I think the newsletter is kind of like, if you've got like a, just a small sort of outsource team helping you with that, um, did, you, did you do any sort of um, ESOP or anything like that? Or is it kind of maybe just you at this point? Or, you know, I love learning about how people see equity. So yeah. Um, so on the, on the newsletter side, you know, I write all the content myself, both on social media and uh, for the newsletter itself, uh, sometimes at 2am the night before, but you know, we get it out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was preparing but, for this just before as well, just to be open with everyone. <laughs> we did have a pre-interview. We did have a pre-interview, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's how it goes sometimes. But um, 
Yeah, no, I have a chief of staff who works part-time for me. He handles mostly like partnerships um, and helps me out with events and some other operations stuff for the business. And then uh, I have a couple of VAs who you know specialize in different parts. I actually wrote a, an article about how I break up my VA team. I have like one lead VA and then uh, a few with like distinct special responsibilities within the team. Um, and uh, we have a designer who works like very, very part-time, like you know, a couple hours a week, but that's, that's pretty much it on the newsletter. Um, and, and the any, thoughts, any thoughts on, on sharing a bit of the love on the, on the ESOP side of things there, not to put you on, well, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but, um, <laughs> we can cut this out if you want me to. <laughs> so the ESOP, what, what is ESOP? Well, like a bit of equity, like a bit of, um, uh, do you think you would have <laughs> like a, some employee options on that? You've got a chief of, chief of staff there. Like you've got a few VAs that would only be, you know, a fraction, but, uh, you know, maybe because it's not venture backable and there's probably no real exit plan. Like it might be a little bit defunct. I don't know. How do you see it? Yeah, no, no exit plan for the, uh, for the newsletter business. It's branded as Hawks newsletter. So I'm not looking to sell it anytime soon. If I ever rebrand it, maybe that changes. I don't know, but no, no current plans are thinking around it. Um, but um yeah no it, no. Could, it could turn into a little media empire man i reckon you should get just like a little you know esop employee share option plan like for the terminology i mean there's lots of different things you can call it especially in the us it's a bit too complex we're trying to simplify it but <laughs> i reckon you should get a little bit out there into that team but anyway that's just me uh, yeah i think if i if i bring folks on on full-time uh definitely um yeah. and probably even probably even folks who contribute a lot part-time eventually. But um, honestly, I've been too focused, just like, let's grow this early stage of the business to, um, to and enjoying owning 100% for once <laughs> to, <laughs> to do anything else yet. <laughs> cool, man. I get it. Well, look, you know, I'm here when you need it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, um, and so the marketplace, um, you know, tell us a bit about your thinking about how to do this differently now with the, all the lessons you have and the different environment that we have. Uh, how are you thinking about growing the revenue, growing the team? You know, how are you thinking about keeping it lean? How are you thinking about raising or employee equity? would love to dig into that. Yeah, I mean, I knew that I wasn't going to actually spend time to build, make this into a business unless it could generate revenue right away. Because again, my goal for this year was just build up the distribution. So if anything was going to distract me from that, it needed to make money. Um, and thankfully, we're able to deliver enough value right away where Megaphone was able to generate revenue right away. So I've uh, been investing more into it. Um, you know, for me, raising right away, if the company's generating enough cash flow and is growing quickly enough, um, wouldn't make a ton of sense, in, especially in this environment where like it's going to take me more time to raise than it would have in 2021, for example. Um, just not where my time can be best used right now. So mm. uh, I think the two reasons that I would think of to raise for Megaphone, one is if we needed to, we were growing too fast and we needed like staff to support that. Right. And I needed to just get more people in the door. Um, and the second was if we had like a growth channel, uh, that was scalable, but we weren't able to take advantage of it without bringing in more capital. Uh, so, um, neither one of those is true right now. We're growing really fast, but because of how robust our system is early on, we've been able to handle the growth. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so haven't brought anyone on yet. Um, I've thought about it. And if I did, I would definitely give them, you know, meaningful equity because they'd be joining pretty early. Uh, at the same time, you know, we're at um, uh, close to a, you know, we're over actually over a $200,000 run rate already for the whole business. So uh, we would need to think about, uh, even though it's only been like two and a half months, we need to think about what that, what that looked like, but uh, definitely want to bring on a team as it, as it grows. Yeah. Mm, nice. 
Nice. Um, look, I guess I better be careful with your time as well. We're getting close to the end of our time. Um, we talked about, you know, with all your experience, um, coming up with, I guess, our top three to five tips for, you know, for startup equity. And I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but I think that also creates a bit of authenticity and um, perhaps some comedy as we work through it together. Let's see. Um, so, you know, if you were founder starting out, so you know, first-time founders, they're probably the ones that need to learn this the most. What, what would you say in that first year or so uh, would be your top, you know, top few tips? Yeah, I think the number one is like, don't be stingy with the equity. Uh, I think a lot of people, especially first-time founders, are like, oh my God, like this equity is going to be so valuable someday. I'm going to regret it if I even give away a little bit. And so I'm going to fight this advisor or this early employee or this investor for a first round. I'm going to fight them for every little share, basically. Um, and I think that's the wrong approach because you know, at the end of the day, if an advisor or an employee or an investor is going to be a step change for your business in terms of the likelihood of success, then it's worth whatever you need to pay for it, basically. If it's if it's like death or growth, you pay what you need to for growth. Um, you know, uh, everything's life and death in the beginning, so momentum is is key. If you're going to sit around penny pinching every little share, you're going to have a hard time. I like it. I like it. What about number two? Yeah, number number two. Um, number two, I would say, uh, you know, make sure that you have like a secure system set up. So. Even with your co-founders, make sure that you're on a vesting schedule with a cliff. Everything's by the book. This makes it really easy for investors to feel good about you as a founder and the decisions you're going to make as the company grows and also the health of the company. So that, that's a big one. Love that. Always tell people that. Biggest cap table red flag is like a co-founder that's left with like 40% on the cap table and you've got no way to get that back. You're a cook. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it, man. I've seen it all, you know. <laughs> what about uh what about number three? Yeah, let's see. A third one. Um, a third one is like, you know, just on the personal level, like your equity is worth nothing right away, right? It's worth nothing for quite a long time. And so I would say don't like make I've seen founders do this, like make like financial plans for themselves and or their families or something around the future value of that equity. I think that can be really, really dangerous and set you up not only for like personal anguish and failure, but also like stress that can impact the business. So that's a third one. Um, yeah. Well, like if you're like a, you reckon you've got 10 million bucks and then you go and like think, oh, let's tell my wife we're going to buy a house or whatever. So yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it, man. I've seen it. Um, really can't get value out normally until like Series A at least, right? Like there's no cash out for founders until Series A. I mean, definitely by Series B. I think secondaries become like pretty common. But um, like first three to five years, even though on paper you could be a millionaire, um, I think you probably need to discount that back in in reality. Yeah, I mean our our company was a was a a great example of this, right? Like we we were riding really high for a long time, and then things happen that, you know, crush the brand and we weren't able to survive from that basically. So nothing is ever guaranteed until the money's in the bank. This is true when you're talking to investors. This is true when you're talking to partners, like partnerships. And this is also true for your own equity. So um, yeah, it's never, it's never real until it's in the bank. <laughs> nice. Nice. What else have we got? Got a couple, one or two more? I, I let's, let's try to do one more. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think, um, I think, Oh, I had one, but I lost my train of thought. Um, we wrap it at three. That's cool. We do. We got. We got three nuggets of gold there. All right, let's let's go for three. Let's go for three. Cool. 
And um, look, we always finish up with, we, we try and finish up with a creative, healthy lifestyle question. Our listeners would be familiar with this. We're trying to learn how people manage their equity, how people manage their time versus their energy versus their health. Um, there's lots of different ways to do this. And speaking to you beforehand, I, I know you've got an, uh, an interesting uh, answer on this one, which is um, which I'm really looking forward to hearing. So how do you manage, I guess, your health versus building your company? Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't balance my time. Uh, I think like a lot of people do. I mean, I do you know, go to the gym and I have a standing treadmill desk here that I walk on when I have meeting blocks in the afternoon. But with that said, like I work as many hours as I possibly can, as many days as I possibly can, just to make as much progress and growth for my company as I can. So uh, I think I saw an interesting post from um, from Anthony Pompliano, where he was talking with Keith Boy about this company called Traba. Uh, Traba's doing incredible things, another ex-Uber founder. Um, and he was saying how they were advertising that their culture was 996, which is like the traditional, like you're competing against 996 companies in China, so you have to be 996 yourself. Um, and for me, you know, I work as much as I can, as I said. So I don't know if it's 996, probably more like 997, honestly, <laughs> um, at least most weeks. Um, yeah, you know, it's just, you got to do what you got to do to grow your company. And if it doesn't get off the ground, if it doesn't get to a stable place, then what's the effort really for in the first place? So for me, in the early days, you really, really have to grind. Um, and if that means sacrificing, you know, time spent on other things or life balance, then uh, that's what you got to do. But I know that's not for everybody, but that works for me. Oh, sorry. I think that's for everyone that wants a successful startup. I mean, we talk a lot about our health at Cape, and I, I think I'm known as like a healthy founder, but like for two years, I got up at three o'clock every day, you know, in the dark and worked for hours before any human was awake. And, you know, for years, I just pounded away, sacrificed no friends and no social life. And, you know, so um, I don't think there's any other way to do it. But as you say, but like maybe exercising at your desk <laughs> you, can, you can sort of do it like I mean, maybe walking meetings <laughs> the like the the life balance work-life balance and like focus on things other than your company that works really well when your company is already successful and you have a team that manages the mission critical parts of it but yeah i the 3 a.m wake-ups the walking at your desk um the working out in between meetings when you can that's uh that's about as good as it gets sometimes in the early days. And I think it's it's important to be honest about the the kind of grind that goes into uh, making something uh, that is successful. No other way. No other way. Nice, man. Look, thanks for calling that out. Um, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Hauk, you're one of the most interesting and open and friendly dudes I've met um, <laughs> since my foray into the US for the last couple of years. And so I'm very grateful for, you know, what you've, you know, the time and energy that you've given us. And, and I guess... Um, you know, the great connection that we have and, and for your time today and, and helping sharing your journey, the more we can learn from other people, the more we can help new founders and, and all the rest of us not feel so insane on our journey. So thanks <laughs> for that. Um, yeah, and thanks everyone for listening. That's it for Startup Equity Matters today. Dude, thanks for having me. This is great. Always love the chat. Uh, always love uh, the vibe you bring to conversations. So, um, and, and the relationship we have. So yeah. If anyone wants to keep up with what I'm doing, check me out on Twitter at callmehauk uh, or megaphone.network is uh, the megaphone uh, marketplace that I mentioned. And if you want to subscribe to the newsletter, it's join.hauk.news. Yeah, I really advocate checking out Hauk's news. Um, super interesting stuff. Anyway, thanks again, everyone. Thanks again, Hauk. See you soon.